Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our great and generous God, uh, we thank you for all the good you give us, including the prosperity and peace we enjoy. And we thank you also that your word guides us in how we should use what is entrusted to us. And that in this life, uh, we can use these material goods as to store up for ourselves an eternal treasure. Help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to receive what your word says with humble and believing hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to have a conversation I've been reluctant to have throughout my ministry, a conversation about how we can materially support our pastors, how we provide for them. Uh, The conversation doesn't arise from any complaint I've had about your support for me over the years. By God's grace, uh, we've had enough and more than enough. And nor does it arise from anxiety about our budget, even though we are, again, in deficit uh, over the years. I've learned to trust the Lord for his provision through the generosity of his people and he has never failed. But we do need to have a conversation about how we provide for and support our pastors materially, uh, what they're paid and the kind of infrastructure support we give them and it will be helpful to have the conversation now for the three reasons we are having this entire four-week series on how we relate to pastors. That is, uh, you're going or you're looking for a new senior pastor. I hope some of you or your children will, by God's grace, serve the Lord's people as full-time gospel workers. And uh, thirdly, uh, the reality of pastoral burnout. And I think we can have this conversation now that we are more able to have this conversation now. And it's not because I'm on the path to the exit. It's because over the last 20 years, we as a church have matured. When the congregation began, uh, many of us, actually I shouldn't say us actually, but many uh, were quite young when they committed to the congregation, made the decision to stay and so decided to live in the area. Uh, But congregation's older now. It has more life experience, including negotiating issues of work and wage, the costs of running a home and bringing up children. And so you've had to think and make decisions about housing and the future education of your children, grapple with superannuation, all the cons- all concerns that your pastors also have to deal with. Despite the great variation amongst us in material wealth, uh, generally speaking, uh, more of us know what it takes materially to live in our suburbs, in our society. And more of us know more about work and what it supports uh, and what supports and sustains us in work and know some of its frustrations as well. Uh, so let's start this conversation that we can have by looking at what Scripture says about pastors and money. And scripture has two important groups of texts when it comes to pastors and money. And the first speaks of the attitude of pastors to money. The pastor must not be a lover of money. Uh, That disqualifies him from the job. 
Uh, wherever the qualifications for pastoral leadership are spoken about, and you see 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, it is stressed they must not be greedy for money. And the reason for that's plain. Greed corrupts relationships and commitments. The greedy person is directed by what's in it for them, not what, what is good for Jesus' sheep and not what our Lord commands and models. And uh, their attention, the greedy person's attention, is on this world. Their mind is set on earthly things and not on the things above where Christ is and where all our minds should be set. In fact, greed, love of money, is one of the marks of false teachers. The Pharisees who rejected Jesus' authority were lovers of money. And the false teachers Timothy was to oppose in Ephesus were in a sense in the game because they imagined that godliness was a means of gain, of material wealth, and that was their goal. Uh, these false teachers and self-centred shepherds even camouflage their greed as we know well by talking about their wealth as a sign of God's blessing, something to be expected because of their righteousness, something others should accept and support. So they justify their greed by pretending, oh, if they're wealthy, it's because God's blessed them, so they must be right. But like all believers and especially those who are to be models of faith and purity, pastors must not be lovers of money. Because as 1 Timothy says, love of money leads to all kinds of evils. In pastors, it can lead to neglect of their congregations to pursue other money-making ventures, exploitation of the trust placed in them, like the Pharisees who our Lord said devoured widows' houses, that is, used up a widow's living on themselves and their projects. It can lead to a grumbling discontent. Oh, it can mean abandoning the hard places for more lucrative posts, compromises on doctrine to be a friend of the world. Love of money leads to all kinds of evils. And it is still true for us all that no servant can serve two masters since he will either hate one or love the other. He'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Instead, pastors have to model the contentment we should all have, the contentment that comes from confidence in God, Confidence in his promise to provide for us food and clothing and all we need where we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's what our Lord calls for from all his followers, not worrying about what we'll eat or what we'll drink or what we'll wear. God knows that we need these things. But where to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Pastors have to model that. Because after all, they are servants of the Lord Jesus, the chief shepherd who could say foxes have their holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And when he died, all the property his executioners could divide were the clothes on his back. And our Lord in his mercy has given us a model of faithful ministry in the Apostle Paul who was a model of generosity to those he served, generosity that commended the generosity of God to needy sinners in the gospel. 
This is how he speaks about his ministry in Thessalonica. We never use flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labour and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. And that is that model of ministry, that lack of greed that's the fruit of trust in the Lord Jesus, that desire not to burden any. And, of course, that's what made it possible for Paul to oppose destructive patronage in Corinth, that worldly pattern that left all indebted to the rich and prevented confronting their sin and allowed him to conduct himself in ways that made it easier for people to hear the gospel, to forego his rights so that, as he says, we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. So by command and example, and to conform to God's given to God given instruction about ministers, pastors must not be greedy, lovers of money. Like us all, they have to attend to their hearts to see that when tempted to be anxious about their material circumstances, their confidence is in the Lord Jesus to keep them. And again, like us all, they'll have to keep doing that, for cares grow through life, as many of you know. And so can concern about whether you'll have enough. And pastors aren't insulated from the constant talk about money in our society, the preaching of the world that money will make you secure and that the good life is for those who can afford it. Pastors have to watch their hearts. But you, their brothers and sisters, can help free them from anxiety about money by making sure they're able to talk about their concerns realistically when they arise. That it's not taboo for them to raise concerns about housing or about the education of their children or how much their wife has to work to balance the budget. That when they need to talk about these things, they're not marked down immediately as unspiritual and worldly. It may just be that they love their families. And the other thing that can help a pastor not be anxious is being confident of the generosity of the congregation and their determination to heed this second group of texts. For there is a second group of texts that make it very clear that those who labour in the gospel should make their living from the gospel. So let's start with our Lord's instruction to the 72 in Luke 10. He says, don't carry a money bag, travelling bag or sandals. Don't greet anyone along the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. When they enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things set before you. So verse 4 makes it plain that Jesus' disciples preaching the gospel of the kingdom are not to accumulate possessions. 
Can't take anything home if you don't have a travelling bag, a knapsack. But they can travel this way because, verse 7, Jesus expects them to be provided for by those who receive them, who receive their message that the kingdom has come near. Verse 7 makes clear they need not be embarrassed about accepting that hospitality for the worker is worthy of his wages, while at the same time it goes on to teach that they should be content with what's provided, not moving in search of richer provision. Then in 1 Corinthians 9, as you heard, Paul, in defending his decision not to take money from the Corinthians, makes it very clear, as you heard, that the preacher of the gospel is entitled to accept such support from those he ministers to. So he says, my defence to those who examine me is this, don't we have a right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife like the other apostles, the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I have no right to refrain from working? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Or who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk from the flock? So Paul uses analogies taken from their world of work, serving in the army agricultural labour, to make the point that it should be expected that people earn their living from their work, share in its fruit. And of course, the work of those who preach the gospel is preaching the gospel. They should share in the fruit of that. But Paul's not content with human wisdom. He turns to the law of God. Am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law always say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Is God really concerned about oxen? Isn't he really saying it for our sake? Yes, this is written for our sake, because he who ploughs ought to plough in hope, and he who threshes should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. It is in God's provision that even oxen get fed from their labour, from the context in which they are labouring, uh, labouring. God has said it is right that we humans should gain our living from the sphere of our labour. And he then applies that discussion to those who labour in the gospel. Verse 11, <clears throat> if we have shown, shown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? Supporting that statement, verse 13 with the provision made for priests to be fed from the altar, the sphere of their service. A right to support, uh, a right to support for Christian workers exists. Support from those amongst whom they labour and who benefit from their work. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living from the gospel. This right to support is confirmed in other epistles and it's coupled with the responsibility of those who benefit from their ministry to provide that support. Galatians 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the teacher. Now the nature of that provision is non-specific. It's sharing with them all good things, which suggests teachers are not to be treated as servants, just getting the leftovers, and not treated as lords entitled to superior provision. And you've seen both in church history. They're to be treated as equals. Sharing in the good things 
God has provided to his people in that place. In a sense, it's the application to teachers of the love your neighbour as yourself principle. What is good for you is good for them. And then in 1 Timothy, Paul brings together both the Old Testament and our Lord's teaching to support his point that those who work hard at preaching and teaching are, he says, worthy of double honour. That is, to respect and remuneration, being listened to and being provided for so that they can give themselves to that work. So it's very clear that the Lord expects those who serve him in teaching and preaching to be provided for by those they teach, that those who benefit from their work should sustain them in it. It's not presented as an entitlement of an office independent of any work, but provision from their work to sustain them in that work. But that right that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel is there. Now, when we're thinking about pastors and money, we need both sets of texts. We mustn't be like the bad married couple. Uh, You know, you get a couple who are struggling with each other. By the time they come to see us, they're really thinking bad things about each other, right? You open up Ephesians 5 with them, and she only hears what Scripture commands him. You ought to love me. He only hears what Scripture commands her. You ought to respect me. And then each judges the other for a failure to live by God's word, how unfaithful and disobedient they are. And neither, at this point usually, attends to what the Lord is telling them individually, that she ought to respect, that he ought to love. And so they don't practice the self-denying obedience which could make their marriage an encouragement to each other. Congregations need to hear and apply to themselves the word that is given to congregations, share all good things. And that should be the focus of their obedience, just as pastors must hear the word addressed to themselves. Don't be a lover of money and keep working at their hearts. So it's very clear in scripture that congregations should support and provide for those who labour in teaching and pastoring amongst them. But at this point, you're probably thinking, why am I telling you this now, seeing that you've been doing it for years and you have been doing it for years and uh, as part of your trust in and obedience to the Lord Jesus? Well, to answer that question, let me now apply what Scripture says to the three circumstances or concerns that have suggested we need to have this conversation about pastors, that you're getting a new pastor, that I hope that some of you or your children will by God's grace serve the Lord's people as full-time gospel workers and the reality of pastoral burnout. And again, applications, especially the place where you've got to test all things. But firstly, you have never had to engage in making individual variation in the remuneration of pastors except in relation to man's allowances, that is, what's paid for housing. But in calling a new senior minister, you may have to, and reckon with having to pay him more. And I want you to know that having that conversation is not a sign of ungodliness or greed on his part. So you haven't had to grapple with individual variation in ministerial remuneration for two reasons. Firstly, in our denomination, 
minimum ministerial remuneration, that is stipend, non-cash benefits, superannuation, long service leave, is set centrally. It's, it's not the product of negotiation between congregations and pastors, but it's actually set by a committee of the, de of the denomination and approved annually and then circulated to congregations as, they, as the minimum they have to provide for full-time ministers. So you, through your board, have never had to have discussions with individual pastors about what they receive. And secondly, your pastors have not wanted or needed more than that minimum. And so in our congregation, all pastoral staff receive that minimum, either in full or as a percentage, depending on the days worked. So you work three days a week, say, and you get three-fifths of the minimum with the major variation amongst us being in relation to what is not set centrally, the manse allowance. And the pastors have been content to receive all the same because in our understanding, pastors don't get a wage but a living. You see, wages, as you know, vary with hours worked and the level of responsibility or qualification of the worker. But a living is a living the provision of what's required to sustain the pastor, whose hours may be very irregular and who is being sustained also in being an example which embraces all of life 24-7 as well as labouring in teaching. And we've wanted to avoid the comparisons of status and worthwhileness of work, differential rewards, paying this person less, this person more, invite in our society because we are co-workers in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But what is paid is a minimum, not a limit. And our capacity to be content with that has also been the product of a whole range of individual circumstances. In looking for a new pastor, you may have to be prepared to offer more than the minimum, and you may have to engage more closely with individual circumstances. For a start, a pastor who comes, uh, can we have the whole slide? Great, great. For a pastor uh, who comes from interstate is being paid more than a Victorian minister on the minimum stipend. And Paul provided this, prepared this and a lot more uh, for the board. And now just run your eye down those totals and you think we ought to be looking to get an urban Queenslander, Right. Uh, but there will be no saving, let me say, because the big difference between a Victorian and urban Queensland is in the super, and that is compulsory. In terms of stipend and NCB, even the Queenslander, the urban Queenslander, is already earning more than a Victorian, and it actually increases the further you move away from Brisbane, uh, right? Now, it would seem unreasonable. You're a great congregation, Right? But it would actually seem unreasonable to expect someone to take a pay cut to come and work amongst us. And if you're going to have to, if you're going to have the fullest freedom in looking for a successor, you'll actually have to engage in the possibility of having to pay them more. Knowing that will mean as a congregation we have to give more because we don't operate a surplus budget. And you might have to reckon with individual circumstances. For example, with the number of children they have and their age and what this means for their housing needs and the children's educational needs. Now, these are not bad things to think through. 
and, and not just for who, who for who comes, but with your present pastors, touching base with them from time to time about the adequacy of the provision being made for their circumstances. You see, pastors, except at the time of a call, will probably not initiate that discussion or find it very awkward because they're conscious of the warning against greed and of the example of Paul and also of the fact that they are sustained by your giving and know the sacrifices you make to sustain the ministry and are thankful for it. But they'll probably welcome you asking how they're getting on from time to time. And many of you now have sufficient experience of what it costs to sustain your family and of the workplace to be able to have that conversation. And you mustn't think that the pastor talking honestly about such things is greedy or unspiritual. It may just be, <coughs> as I've said, that they love their families and feel the responsibility to provide for them. That's the first reason. Secondly, thinking about sharing all good things with those who teach in the light of our hope that the Lord Jesus will raise up some from amongst us, perhaps even yourself or your children, to pastor and teach congregations of his people means that some of you need to think more long time about that support if pastoral ministry is to be maintained in congregations. And here I want to engage you with uh, the provision of adequate and secure housing for those who labour in ministry, which is increasingly challenging in our society and yet remains something to which most Australians, and that all of us probably, aspire. Now, <coughs> concern for housing is, first of all, a concern for the minister's family. See, they need to be able to live securely and have some privacy where the house is used for ministry. That's why ministers' homes, called manses, are specified by the denomination to be larger than the homes of most of us. The denomination, for example, requires houses provided by churches to have two separate living areas, each with a separate toilet. And that's to allow family life to go on even while the minister is hosting groups or meeting couples and individuals, that is, working. It allows some boundary between work and family life. Now, man's requirements are sensible requirements, but not one you've had to reckon with fully yet. For most of us pastors have been able to buy our own homes and have been willing to trade off some of those requirements for the benefit of home ownership. But it is important to consider it if you have to provide accommodation for a new minister. For one of the biggest reasons in Valerie Ling's survey and others, for ministers considering resigning is concern for their family. It can be hard if you feel your family life is always on display or your children resent the repeated intrusion of people they scarcely know into their homes. But renting such a house in our current rental market, a market many of you are very familiar with, is not cheap. And so you'll have to engage with the cost of that. But secondly... A concern for housing is a concern for the long-term material security of ministers. Do you want ministers to be in their own homes or renting when they retire? 
Now, in the printed notes at this point, I seek to engage you with the consequences for ministry of the difficulty of saving a deposit and getting into, how, into the housing market. Uh, now, plainly, having uh, written it, I think it's worth reading, especially if you think you or one of your children has the gifts and the character to serve in this way. But actually, bearing in mind that some of you are going up to Sunday school afterwards, I want to go now to the third reason we should have, be having this conversation. That's the reality of ministerial burnout. And if you've got the notes, that's on page nine. Now, see, the third reason we need to talk about and apply what the Scriptures says about supportive pastors more broadly is so that we can take steps together to help prevent burnout in our pastors. Now, support for pastors has historically focused on a congregation's provision for them individually. But we should broaden our thinking about that to include the provision of a workplace where the demands are sustainable, for that is increasingly part of the good things we expect for ourselves in our workplace. So your workplace conditions are not just what they pay you. It's all the things that surround your employment as well. See, with Chris's resignation, we are now a three-congregational pastor church. I say congregational pastor because, praise the Lord, we also have a youth pastor and a children's pastor as part of that mix. And, 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 and it really is praise the Lord. right? It, it is likely uh, that with our budget, we will continue to have only three congregational pastors for some time, just swapping me for the next pastor. But the amount of work that made four pastors desirable has not decreased. The pastoral work and the preaching load, therefore, has actually increased for all the remaining congregational pastors. And for some others, particularly Andrew Wirt, as he's helped to sustain the evening congregation, but also Clinton and Andy, there's been an increase in administrative work. You know, the filling out of Excel spreadsheets and populating service teams. Now, that work is essential for the functioning of the services in the congregation and for, for facilitating your ministry to each other. But that is not work they were trained to do. So we're in the situation now where all have more work and some have work that's preventing them from doing the work they were trained to do and want to do. And that is not a recipe for long-term sustainability or effectiveness. Now, Christina Maslach, who I quoted at the beginning of this series, uh, writes, and you may have experienced this in your own workplace, that... Ah, uh, oh, I seem to have forgotten it. Oh, no, that, that was... That was a graph to get you to think about, a picture to get you to think about burnout. Just shows how non-visual I am. Okay, good, because that candle wasn't even spluttering. I was, you know. Anyhow, uh, Maslach writes, especially, and you may have experienced it, especially dispiriting to people is having their plate overfilled with tasks that are not a match for their capability level and that do not contribute to their strengths at performing the job they were hired, let me say, and trained to do. And her example is from medicine where doctors actually cope with busyness if they're engaged in diagnosis and treatment. That is the work they were trained to do. 
She did research with doctors. But they're actually ground down by what she calls administrative busy work, like filling out electronic medical records and making reports. And, and, and she's from the state, so that's all about insurance claims. And, uh, and making reports no one reads. And the demands of that administrative busy work can create goal conflict, uh, set up a conflict in your head where what they want to do is spend time, say, our pastors teaching or pastoring people, knowing that this is what they're called to do, but actually what's demanded of them and consumes their time and, and creates friction sometimes is filling out schedules. You see, your pastors are trained, thankfully, in Bible and theology, church history and languages, in pastoral care and preaching, and they've trained in that because they want to teach the Bible in groups and one-on-one and be equipped to engage our society with the gospel and help us all to do that. None of us are trained in administration. Now, it may be that some have experience in a previous life of administration or are strangely and from my point of view bizarrely gifted in working with computers. Uh, But not all. My previous life has equipped me to be better at dissection than Excel spreadsheets. But thankfully there's not been much call for that, Uh, right? And even if they can do it, it's actually a distraction from the work they were trained and called to do and a congregation needs them to do and it will never be their main focus. And so that means that kind of administration will receive intermittent attention with all the possibility of receiving inadequate attention, which is a recipe for frustration and misunderstanding amongst those serving on the teams and his service is vital. So what can we do knowing that we will not be increasing the number of pastors, both to decrease their workload and also to remove some of these busy tasks from them and so contribute, Lord willing, to their longevity in doing the work they are trained to do and called to do? And at the same time, what can we do to facilitate that important and necessary administrative work which is essential to the functioning of the congregation and when does well, when it's done well, contributes a lot to our cohesion and happiness in service. Well, we, pastors, board and session, have been thinking and talking about this for a considerable portion of the year. And our proposal is that we employ a pastoral administrator, someone who is good with our computer system, good with people and understands ministry. This would relieve a burden from the pastors and improve our administration, which would have a flow on in making it easier for you all to serve. And so we've approached Kat, who is gifted, and you've had experience of this, gifted in all those ways, to offer her two days more in 2024 in addition to the one she already works. But such assistance has a cost. And I want to be quite clear about that. To employ Cat for those two extra days will take about an extra $38,000 a year. Now, we can cover that for a year, but unless you choose to support it with your giving, it will be unsustainable. Now, we're conscious that already we're running a deficit of about $20,000 for this year that will eat into those reserves we have. And we're also conscious that the cost of living is increasing and that interest rates are high. But as I've said, we will be a three-congregational church 
for the next few years as far as I can see. And if we want to sustain our pastors and let them devote themselves to the work they're trained and called to do, we need to make some provision. And this provision will, I think, improve things for all who serve, giving one person to relate to and oversee the functioning of all our ministry teams. But really that employment is up to you and whether you'll support this in next year's budget and more importantly, not just with your vote, but with your giving. Now today is just the start of the conversation about the appointment. I'll be writing more about this in the next communication with the job description and also holding an information evening on Tuesday, November the 28th, uh, where the board can outline in more detail the proposal in relation to the total budget and answer questions, but it really is up to you. In seeking to apply the scriptures teaching about congregation, about teaching that congregations should support those who labour amongst them in teaching and pastoring, uh, we've covered, haven't we, a, a, few, a wide range of matters and, and some you may not have thought about. I've sought to be clear in how this teaching might apply to us in our present and future circumstances and the cost of that. Test all things. But I have one more question, a question for your hearts. How do you think about the support of your pastors? Perhaps you haven't thought of your giving in that way. It's all just supporting the church, the institution, and thinking about, thinking about the pastors as an element of that. Uh, you know, while you're conscious of it, hasn't been at the forefront of your mind. But actually, what you give or don't give directly affects those who serve you in this work. Perhaps you haven't thought about it. Perhaps you have, have and you feel it as an imposition, something you've learned is expected of Christians, but as an obligation, not an opportunity. Maybe even for some of you, you see pastors as an unnecessary luxury in the Christian life and you could get on just fine without them, even though it's the Lord who gives pastors and teachers to congregations and commands their support. I don't know how you think about it, but I've always thought of my giving to the church and particularly the support of those who labour in preaching and teaching both inside and outside the congregation as investment. See, our Lord concludes the parable of the unrighteous steward with these words. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Make friends of yourself for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. Your giving, the way you use worldly wealth to support the work of the gospel, is an opportunity to make eternal friends and shows where you think your long-term future and security lies. The return on this investment in the work of the gospel uh, our Lord says, is going to be both more secure and infinitely better than any return that you'll ever get from your super. And I felt it's a great gift of God's grace that ordinary people like you and I 
can use the ordinary stuff of this life like money to store up treasure in heaven now for eternity. And not only does this investment have eternal benefits, sustaining your pastors is good for you now. It's good for you to have persevering, godly and faithful pastors who can devote themselves to the work the Lord Jesus has given them of teaching you and overseeing our common life so that it conforms to his word. Well, as I said at the beginning, an awkward conversation and perhaps some of you think an improper conversation to be had in our service, perhaps stretching our friendship. Well, if that's you, come and talk. But if you're uncomfortable with the conversation, think. If not now, when? Now is the time when all of you are thinking about getting a new pastor and now is the time when we all have to think about the sustainability of ministers and so I need to talk to you all. So if not now on a Sunday, when? And if not me, who? Who will? Who can and will speak to you about these things? Ministers are always reluctant to speak on these things <coughs> because they are not greedy for money. And they are conscious of the example of Paul and his generosity and the Lord whom they serve. And they want to be like him. But if you don't know some of the issues that relate to their material support, you may never ask them how they're going. Your support for them will be hampered or you may judge them unfairly when they need to talk about these things. And if you think it is improper, Well, that should give you reason to engage next week, our final talk about ministers before we get back to what we all prefer, working systematically through God's word. Ruth here in the morning and Mark in the evening. But if you think uh, it's improper, well, it is preparation because next week we'll be talking about what you do when, and it is when, okay, what you do when your minister stuffs up. So another conversation we need to have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness of your word. And we pray that we would be, we have such an experience of your generosity to us in the grace of the Lord Jesus and such a confidence in your care for us, your promises to keep us that we would use wisely and generously the money that you entrust to each of us through our work, that we would use it in accordance with your word. And gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the pastors you have given us and all who work for us. And we pray (coughs) that they would have such a trust in you that they can commit themselves and all their needs to your care and seek first your kingdom and righteousness in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.